This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to return to a topic we have discussed uh, many times and a topic I'm sure we will discuss many more times, which is the war in Ukraine. And we are now approaching about a year since uh, the uh, Russian government attacked Ukraine. And uh, the war has reached uh, what appears to be somewhat of a stalemate, though that might not be accurate. Uh, Certainly, the Russian government has failed in most of its uh, aims to conquer Ukraine. uh, But the Russian government remains in uh, control of a large part of Ukrainian territory. And the Ukrainian army, which has fought valiantly, is now seeking to dislodge Russia from Ukrainian territory. We are joined today by our good friend, colleague, and leading writer on uh, the Ukraine war, as well as many other issues, Michael Kimmage. And Michael is going to help us understand where we are with the war today, how we understand where we are. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's wonderful as ever to be back with the two of you. And just to remind our listeners, many of whom I know are fans of Michael Kimmage, we've actually received multiple messages asking us to bring him back on. Uh, Michael Kimmage is a professor of history at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and chair of the Advisory Council for the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., He served on the State Department's policy planning staff from 2014 to 2017, and he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio then. So as I've said many times, he knows these issues intimately. He publishes widely on these issues, uh, on foreign policy, on diplomatic history, on cultural history. He's written a wonderful book, uh, The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trilling, Whitaker Chambers, and the Lessons of Anti-Communism, very relevant for today, in History's Grip. Philip Roth's Newark Trilogy, and his most recent book a few years ago, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Michael has written a number of seminal articles in foreign affairs and other major publications on the war in Ukraine. I encourage our listeners to read his articles if you haven't already. And as I understand it, Michael, you're writing a book on the Ukraine war. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm trying to address the origins of the war. Uh, It's, of course, too soon to really write a serious book about the war itself or a comprehensive one, but I'm trying to address the origins 2008 to to 2022. Wow. I think that's going to be uh, a very insightful analysis, and I haven't seen anyone actually do that yet, so um, we really look forward to uh, reading that, Michael. Well, I look forward to finishing it. Yes, that's what we always say as authors. (laughs) Don't hold your breath. (laughs) Uh, Well, this is going to be a very important book, and I guess we'll be getting somewhat of a a preview of it today. Um, Zachary, you have a poem to start us out, as always. What's the title of your poem? A Year After the War Began. Well, there we go. Back to the same topic. Okay, let's hear it. I imagine if I were a Ukrainian peasant, as my great-great-grandfather was, and I could see the sun rise into the pleasant, foggy mornings as he did, and see a thousand armies at breakfast, present and begging for food, with their jokes lewd, and see all my dreams become real fears, I would begin to lose track of the years. But I have not and I can count them on my hand like birds in the sky that also do not seem to understand that time has passed. They all were gassed, or they are ash way up high, circling humdrum above the drunken land, unanswering when I ask, what is my generation's task? I see their faces now on TV reels, eating their rubble with their daily peels. So much of blood has flowed in these same fields that time too seems to march in martial ways and step right over the ones that have died. I have not thought of their new war for days. I wonder if the ghosts are still alive. I love it, Zachary. Uh, What is your poem about? My poem is about trying to come to grips uh, with the length of this war, the human suffering that has been involved in a year of fierce fighting the civilian toll, um, all the lives lost, but also uh, the the hunger 
and the the um, the very basic uh, suffering that has occurred and that so many Ukrainians have experienced this past year or so, but also try to come to grips with the fact that this isn't this isn't a new story. This is an old story. And on this very land uh, that is currently being fought over, uh, dozens of wars have been fought. And, and and this has happened so many times before, but also trying to connect myself uh, to that story with, with my Ukrainian ancestry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Michael, uh, do, do you see a continuity here? Zachary seems to be evoking suffering from the past as part of the suffering of today. Yes. Uh, and in fact, I think Zachary's poem, you asked about my book a moment ago, Zachary's poem <clears throat> really anticipates uh, a core argument of the book, which is that there are really two modes uh, over the last couple of hundred years, two modes of Central and Eastern European history. There's the mode of war, which has just been you know, continuous. You think War of 1812, uh, First World War, Second World War, uh, and of course the more recent wars, uh, all of which have foregrounded the territory uh, of uh, of Ukraine, uh, and that's uh, an all too familiar story. But there's also the mode of uh, imperial control and imperial conquest. So there have been, you know, sort of pauses in the war, uh, but they've often been filled by uh, imperial uh, dominion. Uh, and I think it's a miracle in some ways that after 1991, so many countries in Eastern and Central Europe escaped from that pattern, but I also think that we were a little bit too sanguine about uh, that very pattern. And so I think we've rediscovered it. uh, And one of the ways in which I think we can turn to history at the present moment uh, is to look into that dynamic. And I'm convinced, although I haven't found the answer yet, but I'm convinced that the answer to the core policy problems that the U.S. and its allies face with the war in Ukraine do lie in some uh, serious reckoning with with the past uh, and uh, and with history. Uh, and we can perhaps learn the perseverance, Zachary very correctly mentions, coming to grips with the longevity of this war. We can learn perseverance, I think, in part from a, from a study of history. So I think Zachary's evocation of history in his poem is, is, is just spot on. And, and Michael, how would you put our current moment then in historical context? I know that's a big question, but is this yet another moment of um, war of attrition? between uh, various warring parties in this area? Or is it something different? How do we understand it? I think that uh, it's uh, become a kind of war of attrition uh, in o- almost the classic sense, where uh, the significance of political economy is on par with the significance of, uh, of military affairs. Uh, and to a degree, that's true, of course, of, of every war, but it becomes... Uh, increasingly true of of longer wars. We could dip back into U.S. history, and Jeremy, you've been mulling over this topic and think about uh, the Civil War, where I think it's uh, a consensus among military historians that the industrial capacities of the North uh, over time were just uh, decisive. Uh, And, you know, the war of attrition in that way, you know, sort of pointed toward the importance of political economy. And I think a lot of historians argue that in the Second World War, the industrial capacity of the United States was a key factor over time that the U.S. was sort of ill-prepared for the war in 1941, but proved to be very, very good at fighting a war of attrition. And we could also look at the the Cold War uh, and the role of, uh, of political economy there. So uh, on one level, this will be determined perhaps decisively, this war, by political economy. And in that sense, I think the signs don't look especially good uh, for Russia, because what Russia has... Uh, sort of kicked into being uh, is a vast coalition behind Ukraine. True, it's not uh, comprehensively global, but it does encompass many of the world's most advanced economies. We would also want to factor in Japan and South Korea in addition to, you know, EU and NATO member states, United States, Canada, Australia, uh, etc. And the technological and, and economic capacities of this coalition are really immense. So if you can take a very long bird's eye view Uh, I think that that does augur well for Ukraine. But at the same time that this is a kind of classic war of attrition, it's also an ongoing hot war. So you've had incremental gains uh, from Russia over the course of the last week around uh, Bakhmut. Uh, You have huge gains that the Ukrainians made starting in the second week of September and extending into October, uh, November. So that's really the recent past. And I think everybody expects there to be major kinetic offensives 
from Ukraine and from Russia uh, in the in the spring. And so I think there you get all of the contingencies of warfare. So I don't think we yet have the privilege of saying this will be determined by these big structures. Uh, we're going to be stuck in the contingent phase of this war really for the next uh, six to eight months uh, at least. And in that sense, war of attrition is probably not the only necessary framing. So, Michael, there's been a lot of discussion and debate about sending particular kinds of equipment to Ukraine, particularly debates over tanks. And and readers of newspapers have probably learned more about German and American tanks than they ever wanted to know. Uh, and now there's a discussion, of course, about fighter aircraft. What's really at stake when we're dis- debating these weapon systems? Well, I'm on the edge of my competence here when it comes to the to the weapon systems uh, themselves, but I can think of a few relevant points to put forward in answer to your question, and they don't all line up perfectly. But the first is that certainly the U.S., but I think its allies as well, have gone past many thresholds that they would not have imagined crossing at the beginning of the war. Uh, and you know, Biden has always been clear about not sending uniformed American soldiers to the war. But I think he was reluctant in the first two months to think in terms of a lot of forms of military hardware. Uh, and in a sense, rapidly, he's sort of gone uh, beyond that. And he has enabled some of the more reluctant European countries, most importantly, Germany, uh, to follow in his path. Uh, and he's also getting tugged in that direction by Poland and the Baltic Republics and other countries that really have felt that this has to, this should have happened sooner. But the big picture when it comes to <clears throat> military assistance for Ukraine is really about the scale of it. Uh, and uh, and the significance of it, and it has been in many respects decisive on the battlefield. At the same time, this would be my second point, which a little bit contradicts the, the first one, that by delaying, if you look back in the first three months of the war, by not providing certain weapon systems then, whether it would be tanks or <clears throat> whether it would be uh, missiles or, or air defenses uh, or aircraft, which is, that's, that's, you know, sort of still in play or still in question, but by sort of staggering it, Maybe what the Biden administration and its allies achieved is uh, not getting the Russians to overreact uh, to a massive uh, burst of military uh, assistance. But by staggering it, we've also put ourselves in the position where a lot of the stuff has been promised, but it still has to be delivered. You know, it's not enough to just deliver the weapons. There also has to be training and kind of integration into the Ukrainian military and into its strategy. Uh, And I think that there's a little bit of very mild panic at the moment about this coming too late and, you know, Russia may press forward with an offensive. There was some discussion of that in recent days by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and by the uh, by the New York Times. Uh, and I think that there's sort of real, uh, uh, there's real concern. That is something that we historians will know five or 10 years from now, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit scary uh, in terms of where we are at the, uh, at the present moment, uh, for sure. Final point I would make, uh, and, you know, all eyes have been on Germany and, and Scholz's leadership has left a lot to be uh, desired. But I also have to say that I admire the Biden administration for keeping the Germans uh, on board and that if the transatlantic alliance unravels, which I don't see it doing, but if it un- unravels or even partially unravels, Ukraine is going to be in the most precarious position imaginable. So it's not just a military task when it comes to the weapons. It's a domestic political task and it's a diplomatic task. And all things considered, I think the Biden administration has juggled those balls pretty well. But I think this is still a bit of an undertow of regret that it couldn't, that it didn't move faster uh, sooner when it came to assisting Ukraine with the war. I want to ask about the other, perhaps even more powerful weapon of war, which is propaganda. It seems to me that that both sides of the conflict have been embodied in in two opposing personalities, Zelensky on the one hand and Putin on the other. How do you, how effective do you think uh, that propaganda on, on either side has been at, 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 at mobilizing and, and, and motivating uh, supporters around the world, uh, and in the case of Putin in particular, at home? I think the virtue of Zelensky, he has many, I think, as a politician, but the virtue is that it's not just propaganda, that he set an example at the beginning of the war of personal courage. uh, And he's been a a good communicator just using the facts of the war. So, you know, it's not as if when you think of the way in which he's publicized atrocities committed at Bucha, European and elsewhere, it's not just a propaganda campaign uh, on the part of Ukraine. I mean, there's a PR element to it, but it's sort of getting the word out. And he's done that, I think, 
very effectively. Uh, and uh, in some respects, I mean, this is a kind of curious way of putting it. I think Putin has done a great job of furnishing propaganda that favors Ukraine from the kind of war that he's fought. And I feel like there are moments when maybe Western attention has lagged or <clears throat> Western Europe has gotten cold feet. And then you have, you know, Russia blowing up a train station uh, in, um, uh, in I can't quite now remember where it was, but in central Ukraine. <clears throat> and that, again, reminded people of the stakes of the war. Uh, and the and the horrors of the war. So I think uh, on the Ukrainian side, this part of things probably couldn't have been done uh, a great deal uh, better. I think they've captured the attention of a global public. Uh, they've made clear that the war is unjust, uh, and you know I think that they have evoked uh, large structures of sympathy, uh, which in turn. Uh, are very important for the domestic politics of the United States and of of, of Germany and other countries, uh, and that provide really the political foundation for the military support to, to to Ukraine. So there's a virtuous circle in that case that has been running, and and, and Zelensky has been uh, at the center of it. Now, in a sense, Putin, if you compare him to Zelensky, has so visibly failed, <clears throat> and there are always the contrast that you have Zelensky in his olive green T-shirt. Uh, and still going to you know to places in the war zone and uh, interacting with real people, uh, and then you have Putin at his long table and sort of isolated in the Kremlin, and 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 uh, you know the kind of creepiness of Putin uh, over the past year is is uh, is undeniable, uh, and he really has not, I think, offered to people who are not Russian any kind of compelling or persuasive explanation uh, of the war. So. His propaganda, such as it is, is the typical Russian propaganda of poking holes in the arguments of the Ukrainians or uh, of the U.S. and trying to just sow doubt and 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 make that less uh, persuasive. But there is one area in which Putin has not been ineffective, uh, and this is that for much of the <clears throat> you can use the term global south, but it's not uh, so precise. But for global populations that are not supportive of uh, of Ukraine. Uh, there's either a kind of indifference or a sense that the conflict is far away, uh, or maybe a sense that uh, not that Russia is innocent, but that both sides are guilty. You know, the West has squeezed Russia and Russia has responded by invading uh, Ukraine. And that doesn't stem really from a propaganda campaign in the Kremlin, but the Kremlin has used its media apparatus globally uh, to encourage that. Uh, and it's not been an abject failure on on, on on Putin's part. So he's skilled from his career in Russia at using people's indifference, cynicism, uh, and, you know, he knows how to exploit those things. And he's been trying uh, on uh, on the global stage. If, for example, you would look at uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov's visit to South Africa last week, where he was quite warmly, rece quite warmly received, and it did seem like the South African government was endorsing some aspects of the Russian uh, argument about uh, about Ukraine is sort of effective to that degree that he can get countries and you know China would be relevant here as well countries to mirror or to parrot uh, the Russian theses about uh, about the war. I think that we in the U.S. sometimes underplay Putin's ability in this with the narrative that we all want to believe and I to a great extent do believe uh, that the war has been uh, a, 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 a very significant failure for Russia. What about the argument, to put it bluntly, that, that Putin is crazy? Uh, we've seen uh, Ukrainian intelligence chief, I believe, in recent days promote uh, this idea. Do you, do you buy that? Do you think that, that Putin is a rational actor at this point? Or that he's unhealthy? That's related to right, the question. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's possible that he has cancer. It's possible, perhaps, that he has Parkinson's. I find that a little bit harder to believe just because he looks, in the last couple of months, you know, sort of, you know, relatively healthy, although that could be uh, stage managed. Uh, you know, I thought at the beginning of the war, he looked pale and bloated uh, and uh, under a lot of psychological duress. Uh, to me, he looks like he may have bounced back from that uh, emotion. Um, you know, uh, Jeremy, for us students of the uh, of the Cold War, or rather of, of, of World War II, there's the story about Stalin being sort of incapacitated for the first two weeks of uh, the the German invasion and then he kind of got back into uh, got back into action and you know in, in terms of Putin's physical health that's 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 the impression that I have I, I, I'm not sure that rationality and irrationality irrationality get us so far because they're pretty subjective uh, terms a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder the best answer I can give to your your excellent question 
uh, is uh, my own misinterpretation of Putin before the war uh, and, you know, the way that the war has changed my understanding of him uh, as a human being. And it's not that he's gone from being sane uh, to being crazy, but it's that he's undergone a process over time uh, of radicalization. You know, we speak about this sometimes in terms of the way people go uh, and become terrorists or commit acts of of, of, of political violence uh, or get involved in extreme causes. And I think that that, to me, sort of speaks to how Putin has been in the last couple of years. It felt to me before the war that he was an aggressive man. Uh, he had grievances and resentments toward the West. He was fully capable uh, of brutal violence. I think the Russian campaign in Syria with the Assad government is proof of that. But the you know the second Chechen war that, that Putin prosecuted is also proof of his capacity, perhaps even his appetite uh, for violence. But it did feel to me before that Putin had his limits, right? When he goes into Ukraine in 2014, he doesn't try to take Odessa. Uh, he annexes Crimea and he kind of improvises in the Donbass, uh, eastern Ukraine. And, you know, at a certain point he comes to the table, uh, you know, not in good faith, but uh, he comes to the table and he winds down the fighting. So he imposed on himself uh, a limit. And you sort of look at Syria and, you know, Syria was only uh, an air campaign for Russia and there weren't many Russian casualties and it wasn't that uh, expensive. And with the meddling in the American elections in 2016, there was the WikiLeaks element. There was plausible deniability. It was not as extreme uh, as it could have been. And I don't know what caused the radicalization. You know, maybe it's a little bit of it is the pandemic. That That is an argument that people make. I find that very persuasive. Uh, a little bit of it is being in power for as long as he's been. It often goes to the heads of, of rulers. We can think of lots of American examples of this, you know, sort of late stage Nixon or um, you know, c- certain rulers that have just become hubristic uh, over time. Uh, and of course, the emergence of Russia as a dictatorship. Uh, that's what Russia has become. There's no other word for it. And Putin is a dictator. Uh, and I think he's taken on the mentality uh, of a dictator where he doesn't like to be disagreed with. He encourages flattery. Uh, he's surrounded himself with, uh, with psychophants. And here we have lots of examples from ancient history, from you know, sort of medieval history, early modern history that would help us to understand this, uh, this dynamic. And it's made him a highly uh, impulsive and highly dangerous uh, actor. And I would sort of leave it at that. It often feels crazy to me. The war itself feels uh, crazy to me, but I doubt that Putin is sort of clinically uh, insane in any any form or fashion. He's become uh, a dictator. And so we might turn, uh, you know, Zachary in this case to the plays of Shakespeare, uh, and to think of the ways in which Shakespeare helped us to understand the malign effects of power uh, on the human psyche. I think that's probably the the best context for it uh, and sort of puts us to where we need puts us where we need to be in terms of assessing Putin's actions from this point forward. It, that's such an insightful way of thinking about it. And I think it leads naturally to the next question, Michael, which is now with a, a year of war uh, under our belts, for better or for worse, uh, one thing we, we know as historians uh, studying any war that we've studied is that war changes the actors in it. Uh, and the insight from Clausewitz and others is that it changes those in the war, even those commanding the war, in ways they don't expect. Uh, Lincoln is a different person after the first year of the Civil War. Franklin Roosevelt is a different person. Uh, in 1942, at the end of 1942, than he was at the end of 1941. Uh, war is transformative for all involved. Uh, how have you seen the war change uh, Ukrainian and Russian actors? We, we had you on uh, the day after the war started for one of our most moving episodes and also one of our most popular episodes, I think. And you you described the the, the difficulties the Ukrainians were up against and the challenges they faced. And and it was a very tragic narrative we were contemplating at that time. We're not free of tragedy now, but it's if it's a tragedy, it's a different tragedy now, it seems. A war of attrition is not what we were talking about in year one or in week one. So, so how has the war changed the actors and, and how has it changed you as an analyst? <laughs> That's maybe the hardest question to, uh, to answer. Let me pick three uh, from from what you described, let me take pick three points, and then I, I can try to reflect on, uh, on on that in personal terms, and and, and do my best with that. Uh, you know, I think in in in, in Ukraine's case, uh, it uh, has elicited from uh, Ukraine uh, a set of 
quite remarkable qualities. Uh, and I think they've been much remarked upon by observers of Ukraine and by, by Ukrainians themselves. And to a degree, they, 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 they speak for themselves that uh, the resilience of, uh, of Ukrainian society to absorb uh, this set of challenges uh, and not to have political fragmentation or not to have a kind of mutiny in the society or, or running away from the, the problems that uh, in and of itself is uh, remarkable. The civic agency of Ukrainians, the military uh, is supported often by you know, different forms of, uh, of civic action, people who bring food to the soldiers and, and, and sort of make everything uh, run in a sense. And that's a bottom-up effort on the part of, uh, of, uh, of Ukrainian society. I think also, and maybe this gets uh, downplayed in part because we focus either on Ukrainian society or on the, the figure of Zelensky, but uh, the excellence of Ukrainian military leadership, that you can't take for granted. I mean, you can have a will to fight, you can have a reason to fight, but uh, the strategic choices uh, that Ukraine has made, uh, destroying Russian ammunition over the course of July and August in a very methodical way, but doing it kind of quietly while everybody is biting their nails in the West about uh, a possible Ukrainian offensive, and then choosing the right place to uh, attack in September, uh, taking Kharkiv very quickly, uh, and then successfully pushing the Russians out of uh, out of Kherson. I think, you know, I'm not an expert on military affairs, but I think that the Ukrainian ability to integrate Western technology has been just remarkable. Because once again, you know, the U.S. could dump all of this military assistance uh, in Ukraine, uh, and it could be very hard to use. Uh, and, it, you know, that's, I think, a very important part of the uh, of the story. And so when histories of, of Ukraine's self-defense are written, I suspect that they will focus as much on uh, Zelensky's advisors uh, and the sort of caliber of strategic thinking in Ukraine uh, as they will on Zelensky's talents of communication and his personal uh, in integrity. So it's a holistic picture, really, of uh, achievement, you could say, in the midst, of course, of, uh, of immense and terrible, uh, terrible suffering. And now, Russia uh, has been transformed, certainly, uh, by the war in ways that, to me, were hard to anticipate uh, and to predict, I over-believed uh, that there would be an anti-war movement of consequence in Russia, and there has not been, although 20,000 people are, I believe, currently in jail in Russia, and lots of people have fled the country out of anti-war sentiment. But I thought it would be harder for Putin to uh, make this war stick, uh, and I got that uh, wrong, to be sure. Um, I think that uh, the war has transformed Russia in the following way. Uh, and it's not that that many Russians are true believers in this war uh, or feel that it's the right choice uh, on the part of Russia or even that it will bring good things uh, to Russia. I think that there's not a great endorsement of the official arguments. I think that there is a basic sense among Russians that it's a war that they don't want to lose. And Putin will ride that sentiment uh, as far as he can. Uh, and so it is uh, a sort of shocking transformation in a way. It's not a war that was willed or wanted by the Russian population, yet it's a war that Russians seem willing to perpetuate and to fight as they live in a society that is becoming uh, ever more uh, repressive. So, you know, it's a different kind of tragedy, to be sure, from the tragedy that Ukrainians are uh, experiencing. But in a sense, uh, Putin is depriving Russia of much of the country's potential uh, and uh, of, of of its bright future, really, such as it was before uh, before the war, and that's a transformation all of us will be living with for uh, for quite a long time, I'm afraid. I think that the U.S. is not transformed as a society. Uh, I wish, in some ways, that Americans at this stage were paying more attention to the war uh, and were more involved in what's happening. It's no longer the early, very dramatic stages; it's something else. But. The Biden administration has, uh, I would argue, uh, and I would be glad to be critical if I felt there was a need to be, but I think that they've risen to the occasion. Uh, it's not Afghanistan uh, in the summer of 2021 where you know they were misreading the signals and not communicating well with allies. That is not the story of the Ukraine war. Uh, and uh, it's, it's sort of, in some ways, I find a bit Truman-esque uh, of Biden. Uh, to come into office uh, and to have to deal with a challenge of this size and caliber uh, and to keep his messaging clear, uh, to support Ukraine probably as much or close to as much as the American polity uh, will allow, uh, and to do an absolutely superb job of keeping uh, the allies uh, on board. You know, I think a really uh, and 
really kind of remarkable, remarkable job. So that's not an utter transformation of Biden. It's sort of things that Biden has been preparing for all of his, all his life, but uh, it's a modest transformation and at the same time a very uh, consequential uh, one. Uh, you know, I myself uh, have you know probably changed in, a, in, a, in an intellectual way. Uh, before the war, I had always been looking for avenues of cooperation with Russia, acknowledging that there was confrontation and there was a lot that was ugly and uh, and scary about Putin's uh, Russia. But I had thought that, you know, the two countries, the U.S. and Russia, kind of need to at least work out some kind of basic arrangement uh, because of nuclear weapons, because of uh, the stakes of the relationship. Uh, and um, if that was reasonable beforehand, uh, it's no longer reasonable to think in those terms uh, now. So um, I don't believe that the U.S. should negotiate uh, anything about the future of Ukraine uh, with Russia. Uh, I think that the two governments should have a degree of con contact and there should be deconfliction. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the U.S. has to be sober uh, about uh, how Russia would misuse uh, those negotiations. And I think that that chapter is over until there's a new leader of Russia and you would have trust uh, that something better could be uh, achieved. And so I've arrived now at a sense that we really have to revisit containment and think about how containment could work as a uh, as a U.S. strategy in the absence, I think, really of uh, diplomatic uh, options. And so that's been sort of a big change for me. Uh, and I'm still trying to, uh, to, to work that through. Michael, I've known you for a long time, and uh, you've always been a historian of East-West relations of one kind or another, both diplomatic and cultural. Uh, but what I've noticed uh, is that you have really um, become not just an expert, but you've embedded yourself in the Ukrainian story in a way that I, I think is different from where you would have predicted you would be spending your time two years ago. Is that is that fair? It's true. Uh, and I will offer a sort of caveat there. Uh, and I think it's very important to, to bring up with you, uh, Jeremy, as a professor of history and somebody who works at a, as well at a, at a, at a policy school, uh, I feel very uncertain writing about uh, Ukraine as such. You know, I don't speak Ukrainian in my graduate education, and I did a ton of, you know, Soviet studies and Russian studies in, in undergrad and in graduate school. Uh, I did nothing on Ukraine, uh, and nor was that an expectation or a requirement uh, or really a part of graduate education at, uh, at Harvard and Russian studies, Slavic studies, post-Soviet studies, uh, PhD. I got my PhD in 2000, uh, 2004. Uh, and so I have tried as best I can you know, to brush up on Ukrainian history and to get the kind of knowledge I feel I should have to write on these topics. But I do feel that there's a hole uh, and I do feel that there's something uh, missing. And so you, know, you do the best you can with, 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 with the kind of crises that come your way, but I do feel ill-equipped. Uh, and I'm very gratified to see a debate that's going on among academics. Uh, you know, decolonization to me is probably not the perfect term. I think you're importing something from one field of discourse to another if you're talking about decolonizing uh, Russia. But, uh, you know, be that as it may, what I'm very gratified to see is that there's a much greater interest in Ukraine. Uh, and there's a real effort to understand the sort of complexities of Eastern and Central Europe, you know, not just with Ukraine, but uh, beyond the Russian purview. And I think that that's just essential. So I think I'm not properly educated, but I hope to be a part of a larger process that will rethink some of these questions and hopefully educate a new generation of people who will have the tools that they really need uh, to think through these to think through these questions. I, I, I asked you that question, Michael, and, and your answer is is uh, really thoughtful and, and uh, inspiring. Uh, but I asked you that question in part because I wonder if that actually captures most of all how this first year of war has changed all of us. Uh, many of us uh, had thought about Ukraine in a, in a sort of peripheral way. We recognized this was an area that had been a cockpit of conflict for a long time. As, as Zachary points out in his poem, many of us have a connection to it, a familial co connection, but we don't think of ourselves as Ukrainian usually. Um, and of course, this was an area of focus at the end of the Cold War. The United States worked hard to get nuclear weapons out of Ukraine, and Ukrainians might regret that now. Um, but it's never been central to American strategic thinking nor to European strategic thinking, it seems to me. And it's now at the top of the agenda. Uh, and in some ways, that that's always what 
smaller countries are struggling for, right? Attention, voice in the international yes. system. Um, and, and I wonder if that might turn out to be one of the most significant geopolitical shifts of the last year. I wonder your thoughts on that. Yes, I, I fully agree. In fact, I would use uh, the term central uh, and, uh, and Eastern Europe. I mean, it's always been of interest uh, to Americans, especially um, uh, especially Poland. I mean, there have always been uh, a lot of books written about Poland and the kind of engagement in some ways with with Polish intellectual life and 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 and, and Polish history, which is uh, which is wonderful. But we really need to broadly think through this uh, think through this region. I think that that was the undoing of of Woodrow Wilson, really, uh, in uh, in 1919. It's poignant in a way when you think that the Ukrainians were not at the table. Uh, in uh, in Versailles, they were sort of left off. Uh, and when Woodrow Wilson proposed this idea of ethnic self determination, it's a nice idea. Uh, and the train station in Prague is named after Woodrow Wilson for that uh, for that reason, as a as a matter of homage. But he really didn't get how troubled and problematic that would be uh, in Eastern and Central Europe, where there weren't clear lines and um, where ethnic uh, you know sort of politics and nationalism could so often lead. Uh, to conflict. Uh, in a sense, after 1945, I don't know if we had to think too much about Eastern and Central Europe because it was buried behind the Iron Curtain and the U.S. regretted that. Uh, but it sort of took it out of the picture in a certain sense. And then you have the Helsinki Final Act in 1975. And, and I don't think a huge amount of thought was devoted to, at that time to the future of Hungary or to the future of, uh, of Ukraine. And I think we could have done a much better job of this after 1991. That's, I think, a place where I would be quite critical uh, of uh, of U.S. policy that was just published in Foreign Affairs, an exchange between Strove Talbot and George Kennan about Ukraine. And Kennan raises some pretty interesting questions about, well, will the provision of military assistance to Ukraine cause problems in the region? And what does Strove Talbot write back? He says, well, you know, it's all now about economics and the region is going to integrate because there'll be trade and commerce. Uh, and even for somebody as learned as Strove Talbot, that's a pretty thin answer. Uh, so we should have been thinking much harder about uh, the history and the sort of politics of this whole uh, region and bringing it forward in our strategic sensibility, because it really does in some ways determine uh, whether Europe is going to tip one way uh, or another. And then finally, the point that I would make about the U.S. in particular is that I think that the U.S. is going to emerge as a kind of victor in this conflict. In other words, I think it's going to be on the winning side. It may be five years from now. And in that case, if that's true, the U.S. is going to be probably the most significant actor in the region in terms of security, in terms of its uh, of its future. That's a huge responsibility. And you would want to have the requisite cultural skills and knowledge uh, and nuance and, sen and, and sensitivity. And probably the same is true if things don't go well for the U.S., because this will remain then uh, a long-lasting uh, conflict zone. And those same things would be, uh, would be valuable as well. So, um, you know, there are these tectonic fault lines in the world. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that Ukraine uh, sits atop one of them. Uh, and we had not understood this adequately. Adequately, We probably don't understand it adequately today. Uh, and there's therefore a, a huge intellectual job to do. And if, if, as you say, Jeremy, that I've been trying to do some of this in the last year, then I'm, you know, it's, I think it's only to the good. I'm just, this is, this is what I would want to try to develop. Uh, I've been uh, revisiting in recent days this essay uh, by Milan Kundera, The Tragedy of Central Europe, and, and your comment really reminded me of that. Uh, the idea that he writes in the essay in, in, in the mid-1980s uh, that, that the West has forgotten that behind the Iron Curtain lies not just Russia, but a whole other region, uh, Central Europe. And I think that your, your point is, is very clear, and it is that hopefully one of the outcomes of this war will be a, a greater American awareness of the region, a greater American uh, understanding of the region. But that's not just going to come from, from passivity. We have to be active in our efforts to understand the region, to learn the language, to read the literature. Um, so hopefully our listeners will, will, will join us in doing that. Do you think that'll happen, Michael? If I could add as a footnote to your comment, I hope it will happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard work and, and it's complicated stuff. And uh, you know, the national commitment to learning languages and just area studies in general needs to be larger across the board. So, you know, I, I hope it will happen, but, you know, we'll have to move mountains to to make it happen. If I could just add as a footnote, though, Zachary, to what you just said in terms of regional knowledge and thinking back to uh, to the Cold War, these great books by David Angerman about 
American scholarship in the Cold War. I think what we were trained to do, those of us who are interested in this topic and were sort of either trying to understand the Cold War or to be uh, able to comment on, on U.S. policy after 1991, we were trained to think about Moscow. We were trained to think about the Kremlin. Uh, and we were trained to think about its nuclear weapons and its strategic culture and its concerns and Kremlinology and all of that. And I would never argue against that. That's useful knowledge, too, of course. Uh, but uh, it's also uh, enormously limiting. Uh, and that has replicated, I think, certain Russian efforts to construe the region as sort of <laughs> subordinate to, uh, to Russia. This is an ongoing you know, sort of academic discussion at the, at the present moment at conferences and in uh, and in journals, but uh, it's uh, it's something that we have to really carefully think through. I can add one further footnote. Being an academic, it's never one footnote, uh, but uh, in this case, two. And this is it's about you know the kind of practice of diplomacy. So I've heard from a lot of American diplomats that what really changed for them after 1991, when the U.S. opened all these embassies in the you know the 14 other countries apart from Russia that had emerged from the the Soviet Union is that it was an, it was a transformative experience for the diplomats that instead of going for their training to Moscow they would go to Tbilisi or to Vilnius or to, to Minsk or to Kiev uh, and they would learn from the local people there how they thought about uh, the region and politics and uh, you know sort of what their uh, preferences and ideals were and that really in a sense brought the region into view in in three dimensions so that's happened for the diplomats you know there's probably an academic task and then when the academics can do it. Adequately, I think this is a big task of public education uh, when it comes to the enormous complexity uh, of this region. But it is moving, you know, uh, for better or worse, it's sort of moving precipitously into the center of America's own strategic objective. And so uh, uh, the aforementioned mountains really do have to be moved uh, in the direction of better understanding. So, so Michael, we don't want to close by asking you to predict the future because that would not be fair. None of us can predict the future, uh, particularly in this conflict. And uh, again, going back and listening to the really stunning episode that you that we did with you when the war started, uh, none of us anticipated where we would be right now. Uh, and I think it's probably a better place we are now than we thought we would be in. Uh, with regard to this war. Uh, what I think is appropriate to close on maybe is what historical knowledge in particular do you hope that people are inspired to uh, investigate to better prepare for the future? Um, obviously, one needs to follow the war, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, follow it in the newspaper. There's excellent reporting every day. There are all sorts of sites online. You're writing frequently about it. So keeping up with the day-to-day -day is a task enough. But then there's the question of the historical knowledge, the context that we need. It's one of the really extraordinary elements of your analysis. You bring that. Where should our listeners go to prepare themselves to understand what will happen in the next few years? This is a tough uh, question to be sure. Uh, and uh, let me touch on three points uh, in, uh, in answering it. A US point, um, a Russia point, and I think it's appropriate to conclude with the point about, uh, about Ukraine itself because uh, it's uh, obviously at the center of the story and yet I myself often you know, sort of move beyond that in my uh, analysis. And I think that speaks in part to this education that I've had. And, and uh, it's, 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 it's very, very important to root and at times to reroute the story uh, so that Ukraine is at the, uh, at the center of it. Uh, I think when it comes to uh, the U.S., uh, I think I've mentioned part of the answer already. I think it's very important to go back to the Treaty of Versailles uh, and to go back uh, to that moment uh, and think about conceptions of the East uh, in Europe uh, there. I think that what captures our attention when we go back to that moment, especially people who are interested in policy and what to learn from it, is the Franco-German relationship. And it's sort of German reparations and did, you know, did Versailles screw up Germany and enable the rise of Hitler? Or was it the kind of best that can be done, which I think is Margaret Macmillan's argument in her beautiful book uh, on the topic. But I think we need to bring forward the Eastern component. In fact, in her book, not to be critical of it, but the Eastern stuff is sort of uh, 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 sort of marginal. It's like the, the Poles and the Czechs and the, and the Ukrainians, they kind of show up on the periphery of that narrative, but it's really a kind of British, American, French, German uh, narrative. And I think we have to rethink that. We should probably rethink the Second World War to think a bit more about 
the Eastern Front uh, and uh, the significance uh, of that. And we need to go back in a very careful way uh, and go through the history of the 1990s uh, and uh, and beyond and get a little bit away from this, you know, sort of NATO expansion debate. Was it right? Was it wrong? I don't think that that matters much for the outbreak uh, of the war in 2022. I don't think it's paramount on uh, on Putin's mind, but how the U.S. worked with the regions, the the sort of mistakes it made or the misunderstandings and the achievements as well, I think we need to tally that all up and we can do that through historical inquiry and and, 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 and debate uh, and discussion. Now, on, on the Russian side, for me, the key variable, I think the key variable in the war uh, is Russian public opinion. And I say that uh, not to displace the war from Ukraine uh, to Russia, but I don't think that you, the Ukrainians are going to yield. I don't think the U.S. is going to go back on its policy, and I don't think that the Europeans are going to break up on the issue of Ukraine. I think it's set, this policy. And barring electoral flukes in one country or another, I think it will go on as it, as it, as, as it is now uh, for years. And so in that sense, I don't think Russia has what to work with in terms of changing the situation on the other side of the, uh, of, uh, of the line of contact. And I think all of that is going to hold. It's interesting. We have to pay close attention to it. You know, I could be wrong about that, but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay put. But I'm not sure about Russian public opinion. Uh, I think that that is where uh, Putin could lose out with the war. It could be a year or two from now. It could be for economic reasons. It could be because the veterans come home and tell people a different story from what they're seeing on TV. It could just be the setbacks and defeats of the war, uh, turn the population against it. It's, it's not going to happen fast, but it, it it really could happen. And for that reason, we need to go back into history. We need to think about 1905 and how Russia loses the Russo-Japanese War and goes into this you know, sort of period of both revolution uh, and reform. We need to think about the Afghanistan War. We can even go back to the Crimean War, which Russia loses, uh, and that induces a kind of moment of, of reform in Russian history. But let's think about the Russian population now in the present tense, sociologically, but let's go through history and look at moments in which public opinion has shifted uh, attitudes. Russian history, authoritarian as it is, top-heavy as it is, it's not just the czars uh, and the general secretaries and, and, and the presidents. The people matter uh, greatly. And they will, I think, uh, matter a lot to the, to the end phase of this war uh, whenever it comes. Uh, in terms of history and, uh, and Ukraine, uh, you know, I think that there's just a lot uh, to gather. Uh, and, you know, one thing is to understand the geopolitics, as we've been talking about for the past hour, you know, the various wars and uh, the configurations and the great powers that have, uh, you know, sort of often invaded Ukraine and uh, and divided it up. And that's uh, a very important topic. Uh, you know, what Ukrainian politics is, is another topic. And that's not equal or the same as uh, as the geopolitics. Uh, and there, I think we all have a great deal uh, to learn. This would take us back to 1918, the creation of a first uh, Ukrainian republic to the late 19th century and to the formation uh, of a kind of Ukrainian bourgeoisie that was a, a vehicle of, 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 of national sentiment, not just nationalist sentiment, but of, of, of national sentiment. And even, you know, the sort of the medieval period that is is, is so important to the uh, to the region at large. And then finally, Ukrainian culture. Uh, you know, what is uh, Ukrainian uh, culture? Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of what, what forms it? What, uh, what, what fuels it? What is the role of, of, of religion in Ukrainian society? It's, it, that's, that's, that's one important question. What's the role of language and music? Uh, and uh, how does the cultural imagination work out uh, over the course of the last 10, 20, 30 years from the period of independence, but also back into the 20th century uh, and into the 19th century. I don't know if that's going to provide us a key to the war. Uh, it may uh, help to explain certain kinds of resilience or, or civic uh, activism or pluralism uh, in Ukraine, uh, but I think it may help us to understand just the people who are there uh, at, the at the center of this war uh, and uh, the way in which uh, they live uh, through it. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, as important when it comes to the memory and the history of the war as the great decisions and the battlefield events uh, and the political economy uh, and, the, and, and the economics, the, the people themselves in their, uh, in, their, uh, in their cultural life. And there, I think most of us in the U.S. and outside of Ukraine, we have uh, truly an immense amount to learn. Michael, you have you have given a master class in uh, why history matters, particularly in moments of conflict, in moments of uncertainty, and in moments where we recognize the world is changing, but we don't know how and in what direction. 
Um, history provides us, as you pointed out, in each of the cases for the United States, for Russia, for Ukraine, uh, it, it provides the only setting in which we can contemplate what are the likely futures in this uncertain moments by looking back that we can think forward. Zachary, does this um, resonate with your poem on the ghosts that you say are still alive? Is, is this the moment a year into this war when we have to not just focus on the battlefield, but understand the ghosts better? I think so. I, I think for many of us, and, and I know this was the conversation on February 25th, uh, 2022 on this podcast uh, with, with, with both of you, many of us expected this war to last only a few weeks. And I think that it's, it's worthwhile um, a year or so later to think about why it didn't, as I think we've done today, but also to go back and, and look more deeply at the history of this region and, and recognize that, that, that this, this, this war, this terrible conflict is here to stay. And, and we have a responsibility not only to understand the present conflict, but all of the conflicts that came before it. Well, Zachary, if, if you don't mind my, my jumping in just for a second, Zachary, it's, it's a word that has come up in several of your poems with our discussions over the past year, or at least in, 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 in two today's and in a previous one. And it's the word generation. Uh, and you've often spoken in our conversations about what this means uh, to your generation, which is a wonderful question uh, to ask. It's my strong sense uh, in terms of predictions, I'm comfortable making this one, that the conflict that began perhaps in 2014, but certainly in 2022, the conflict that began that we call Russia's war against Ukraine, it's, it's, it's a generational conflict for us. Uh, it's not a conflict of years and probably not even a conflict of, of decades. It's a general generational conflict, by which I don't mean to predict that the war is going to last for 30 years. That I have no idea about, and it could end uh, in a year, but the conflict is not going to end in a, uh, in a year. And in that sense, we need to think, it's one of the hardest things to do in an age of social media, we need to think in generational uh, arcs. So it's, 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 it's wonderful in every respect, Zachary, to have you as a part of these conversations, but I think you remind us uh, of, uh, of the importance of, of, of generations, and, and also, I would say, of, of generational thinking. I think that's a perfect note to close on. This is a generational conversation that we're having here, and it is a conversation that will continue in many forms. And, and that's the whole point of uh, this podcast and what uh, Franklin Roosevelt was articulating when he spoke of each generation writing a new chapter in the Book of Democracy. We, we don't know what that chapter is going to look like, but we're all in the midst of writing it. And, and as with writing anything, it's, it's a messy, difficult process. Uh, Michael, as a as I think one of the best writers on this topic today, uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Well, Zachary and Jeremy, it's it's, it's an honor, a privilege, and, and and also a pleasure to be uh, to be in your intellectual company. And Zachary, thank you for your uh, wonderful, thought provoking poem, as always, and uh, for your excellent questions. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.